Welcome to Canaan Podcast, episode number 61. I'm Tom Barthel, gladly serving as your host for this episode. We begin with Moment with the Master, shared by Pastor Aaron Nitz. Hello, welcome to A Moment with the Master. Today our scripture lesson is from Luke chapter 21, verses 25 through 28. Here Jesus is describing some of the things that will take place near the end of the world. He says, There will be signs in the sun, moon, and stars. On the earth, nations will be in anguish and perplexity at the roaring and tossing of the sea. Men will faint from terror, apprehensive of what is coming on the world, for the heavenly bodies will be shaken. At that time they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. When these things begin to take place, stand up and lift up your heads, because your redemption is drawing near. So when will Jesus return? Perhaps you've thought about that question. Perhaps you've rolled your eyes at one of the countless times public figures have tried to predict Jesus' return. But finally, only the Lord knows that day. But why do people do that? Well, perhaps it's because there's always an element of fear in the unknown. What's going to happen? Indeed, people who rejected Jesus as the Savior will certainly be fainting from terror. But what about you and I? Should we be nervous or afraid of that great day of the Lord? Actually, just the opposite. We know who's coming. It's Jesus. And we know what he's like. He forgave all our sins with his life, death, and resurrection. And we know why he's coming, to take us to be with him in the kingdom of heaven forever. You see, knowing that, we actually look forward to Jesus' return. He's coming to take us home. We're excited because that day is going to be great. So in the meantime, we do our daily tasks with joy, for we know our Savior is coming, and we can hardly wait. I'm looking forward to Christ's return. And so are you. May the Lord pour out his blessings on you this day and always. Here's a song performed by the Camp Philip Choir, A Part of Me. Thank you.
Remember that you are dust, and to dust you will return. These are the words shared according to the rubric in Christian Worship Occasional Services from Northwestern Publishing House. Why the ashes? That's what this segment on church history is going to examine. To begin with, the Bible history is church history, and we start by looking at the scriptural view of ashes. We know that the use of ashes isn't something made up by the Roman Catholic Church or even by early the early Christian Church. It penetrates the advent of Christ all the way back to ancient times, during the patriarchs. We have to look all the way back to the curse of God on fallen mankind given in the garden. Dust you are, and to dust you will return. That's where the words of the imposition of ashes comes from. Any echo back to dust and ashes will, naturally, be primarily a reminder of our sinfulness. Ashes and dust remind the sinner of our mortality and how the curse of sin is death. Abraham spoke to God in this way in his prayer recorded in Genesis 18. I have been so bold as to speak to the Lord, though I am nothing but dust and ashes. We do well to keep this humble mindset always before us. The book of Job, arguably one of the most ancient biblical accounts, has Job sitting in ashes of repentance at the beginning, and at the end of the book confessing to God, I am but dust and ash. Interestingly, ashes were also prescribed for ceremonial cleansing. The ashes of a sacred of a sacrificed heifer were commanded by God as an ordinance for the water of cleansing used by ancient Israel. That ceremony seems to be more concerned, though, with the reminder that the ashes brings of the sacrifice, and which came as a result of actual sacrifice and washing, more than just what the ashes themselves symbolize. The prophets also called people to put on ashes in repentance. Daniel sat, on, sat in sackcloth and ash when he was fasting and praying. Finally, Jesus also alludes to the use of ashes as an outward sign of inner repentance. But what about its continued use in the Christian church? It ties in with what became a 40-day period of repentance and preparation for Easter. This was a preparation for many baptisms in the early church. Candidates for baptism would choose the Easter celebration as a time when they joined the church through baptism. They saw 40 days as fitting, most likely because of Jesus' 40 days of temptation, as well as the other times of trial and testing, like 40 years in the wilderness for ancient Israel. In addition, there were 40 days after Easter before Jesus ascended into heaven. By the way, if you're doing the math and wondering how Ash Wednesday could possibly be 40 days before Easter, you need to drop out the Sundays in Lent. Sundays were considered like little islands, little Easter celebrations that didn't really warrant the same mindset as the other days leading up to Easter. Thus you have Ash Wednesday as 40 days before Easter minus the Sundays in Lent. It was during these 40 days of penitential preparation for Easter and these baptisms in which others joined with those new to the faith. The use of ashes and the imposition of ashes was an outward sign of their inner repentance and their preparation. It was symbolic. And we see by the, by the 11th century, it became actually a nearly universal practice in the Christian church to, during those 40 days, begin with Ash Wednesday, and quite often the imposition of ashes, the outward symbol.
Now, of course, the imposition of ashes is, in and of itself, merely symbolic, an outward ritual. You could say that there's no more benefit than, and no more harm than lighting candles on Advent, or the way that a Wells minister might speak, as they would according to Christian funeral, the committal, earth to earth, dust to dust, ashes to ashes, while they sprinkle dirt or sand on a casket. These things are all symbolic and just teach us. Ritual can serve a helpful purpose. Families that have used an Advent wreath or a Christmas tree know the value in ritual for teaching, remembering. And this ritual is connected to the scriptural connotations of ashes for repentance. Nonetheless, the Roman Catholic Church added to the ritual of the imposition of ashes the concept of penance, meaning you are doing something for God because of your sins. Penance is contrary to the scriptural doctrine of salvation by grace alone. It's through the merits of Christ that we receive forgiveness, not our acts of penance or even our sorrow over sin. Christ faced the devil for forty days in our stead. He defeated our enemy. He lived in perfect holiness. And it is Christ alone and his righteousness that we have. He cleanses us from a guilty conscience. The Lutheran Church did not retain the imposition of ashes during the time of the Reformation. It's all the connection to penance and rejected the rite as against the gospel. There were many foolish traditions also connected to the ashes in the Roman Catholic Church, such as the blessing of the ashes. There were many false teachings regarding the attitude of the worshiper, with cloud, which all clouded the grace of God with conditions and ritual. Much of the liturgical worship we enjoy in the Lutheran Church today is a result of what has been labeled the liturgical movement. In the 20th century, many churches, including Lutherans, sought to find ancient rites of the church which could be restored without the baggage of false doctrine added by the Roman Catholic Church. Many congregations have used a rite of imposition of ashes. Which brings us to the Wells history. Some Wells pastors also asked that question. Could this rite serve as a use for the gospel and a tool for a confessional Lutheran? It appeared in the mid-90s as some congregations found it beneficial and a good reminder of the sin and the need to look to the cross of Christ during the season of Lent. It was well received and a growing number of Wells churches began to use the rite. The rite was demonstrated in an Ash Wednesday service at the 1999 Wells National Worship Conference. Since then, hundreds of Wells congregations have used the rite during Ash Wednesday. Remember that you are dust and to dust you will return. What more can you say is a powerful reminder of the history of mankind, something designated to call us to repentance. Some worshipers leave the ashes on their foreheads as a witness to those around them. But the witness in Christian worship occasional services is not prefaced by things like a blessing of the ashes or any connotation of penance or making up for sin. Rather, the words indicate the minister applies ashes to the forehead of each in the form of a small cross. And immediately after each has voluntarily come forward to receive that sign on the forehead, absolution is proclaimed. Forgiveness is done. James Tiefel, professor at Wisconsin Lutheran Seminary, put it well. Like all symbols, the imposition of ashes is a servant of the gospel ministry. It has value insofar as it recalls and enables a deeper understanding of a spiritual truth. God has little interest in ashes. He is concerned about a contrite and repentant heart. 
For some, ashes will have little impact on their Lenten contrition. For others, however, the ashes imposed on Ash Wednesday may be a powerful reminder of the sorrow over sin that always precedes lifting our eyes to faith in Jesus. God bless your Lenten meditation. Remember, our journey here ends in dust. We are mortals, sinners, but covered by the cross of Christ. In his promised land of rest, there will be no more death. God's word for you, Job 19, verses 21 uh, down to 24. Verse 21 and 22. Have pity on me, my friends, have pity, for the hand of God has struck me. Why do you pursue me as God does? Will you never get enough of my flesh? Job's emotions here have reached a crisis. The symptoms of his disease have driven away his wife and his closest friends. His position is so destitute that he has gone from an object of pity to an object of scorn. Now he begs for at least pity once again, although he once complained that his friends had turned away and it seemed like God had turned away too. Now he's not so sure who is following whom. Are the friends after him now like God or or, or what's going on? He's not following his own argument. Desperate and despairing, Job has nowhere at all left to turn. He is on the verge of something dangerous, a breakdown of some kind, but he's also on the very threshold of something else, a deeper, stronger faith. Verse 23 and 24. Oh, that my words were recorded and they were written on the scroll that they were engraved with an iron tool on lead or engraved in rock forever. Around the time that Job lived, this is about 2000 BC, a lead sheet with an inscribed curse or prayer was left in a grave in Carthage. Lead is a very soft metal. A schoolboy from my generation wouldn't have been surprised at all to find that it would be easier to inscribe a poem into lead than into a wooden desktop. Closer to Job's location, the Hittites also recorded things in lead. This kind of engraving with an iron tool, Hebrew be'it barzel, was perhaps old-fashioned in the time of Jeremiah 1,500 years later, but it still served as a way of describing permanence. Jeremiah says, Judah's sin is engraved with an iron tool, be'it barzel, inscribed with a flint point on tablets on the tablets of their hearts. Job wants his words recorded in this way, so that they will last beyond his death. His death is very much on Job's mind. He can't see any other conclusion to his present tragedy. But beyond death, Job is looking for something else. He knows that he has something left, and it will permit him to see God and even to rise from the dead. Job knows that he still has someone left, an advocate, a defender. We have the same promise and the same certainty. We have a defender in Jesus Christ. Job is looking for someone who in Job's language is known as the Goel. We'll see what he means and discover the identity of Job's Goel in the verses that follow. In Christ, I'm Pastor Tim Smith. This is God's Word for you. We'll close with a song performed by Koine. This is taken from their DVD, Footsteps to the Cross. It's a song by Sufjan Stevens. The Transfiguration. Disciples to the mountainside to pray. His countenance was modified. His clothing was a flame. Two men appeared 
Moses and Elijah came, they were at his side. The prophecy, the legislation spoke of whenever he would die. Then there came a word of what he should accomplish on the day. Then Peter spoke to make of them a tabernacle place. A cloud appeared in glory as an accolade. They fell on the ground A voice arrived The voice of God The face of God Covered in a cloud He said to them, the voice of God, the most beloved Son, consider what He says to you, consider what's to come. The prophecy was put to death, was put to death, and so will the Son. Keep your word, disguise the vision till the time has come. Son of 
You've been listening to Canaan Bound Podcast, episode number 61. This podcast was first shared in March of 2014. You can visit CanaanBoundPodcast.com to find more information on how you can support the artist featured in this podcast. All music used by permission of the artist. We encourage you to visit a Wells ministry location nearest you. Visit wells.net. Thanks for listening. What he said to them, the voice of God, the most beloved son.